United States expansion across the United States, what we now call the United States across the continent, the federal government encountered hundreds of tribal governments, tribal communities, and indigenous peoples who owned and used the lands that the United States hoped for. I'm Robert J. Miller. I'm a professor of law. I teach at the Arizona State University College of Law, and I do all of my research and writing in the field of Indian law. I've published four books on various issues about Indian law. I am an enrolled citizen of the Eastern Shawnee Tribe of Oklahoma. Under the definition of my own tribe and under the definition of federal law, I am an American Indian. In the early 1800s, Native American societies across the continent were in collapse. Infectious diseases had been devastating indigenous populations since the time of first contact with Europeans, but now the United States was fixated on continent-wide domination. As American settlers began to move west in large numbers, there was one central question on the mind of many politicians in the United States how to justify the seizure of vast tracts of Western land owned by existing Native American governments. You're listening to Common Land, a podcast series produced by the Wildlands Collective and Radio Boise with support from the Bureau of Land Management, the Birds of Prey NCA Partnership, the Archives of Falconry, and a grant from Patagonia. I'm Matt Podolsky. Common Land tells the creation stories behind protected areas, and in season one, we are exploring a national conservation area in the Snake River Canyon of Southwest Idaho, an area claimed by the Shoshone and Paiute people, and whose land title is currently in dispute. Most people that study Lewis and Clark in school, all they think about is that Thomas Jefferson was sending them to the West to explore and to look for the flora and the fauna. But in reality, the Lewis and Clark expedition was very much an imperialistic expedition, an attempt by Thomas Jefferson to acquire what was called the Oregon country, which certainly included parts of Idaho in the early 1800s. So Lewis and Clark, I think every historian recognizes that they were involved in making a legal claim for the United States, for the Oregon country. International law, show up, use the land, be the first to find it, plant your flag, and then occupy it. And that's exactly what Lewis and Clark were doing. That's what Thomas Jefferson intended them to do. So where he was really sending Lewis and Clark was to the west of the Rockies, to the Oregon country so that the U.S. could contest Russia's claim, Spain's claim, and England's claim to the Oregon country. And that's where Lewis and Clark were really headed. As Robert Miller explains, at the time of Lewis and Clark's expedition, which began in 1804 and ended in 1806, what was then known as the Oregon country was a disputed territory. This region, which covered a vast area of the Pacific Northwest, included current-day Oregon, Washington, Idaho, and British Columbia, and was claimed by the governments of Russia, Great Britain, France, Spain, and the United States. But there was a secondary diplomatic goal of the expedition, which was tied to a rarely discussed provision of the Louisiana Purchase. 
the United States purchased from France not the real estate, not the land, not the title to the land, but the right to buy the land from the indigenous peoples, from France. That's all we paid France for. And Jefferson knew that. He was a lawyer. He knew the law. And they were encountering native peoples. They were engaging in diplomatic relations with native peoples. And the United States and the law of the United States has always recognized that indigenous peoples had ownership rights, property rights, in the lands and assets in the areas that they lived. By the early 1840s, white U.S. settlers were beginning to arrive in substantial numbers. It's estimated that close to 1,000 arrived via the Oregon Trail in 1843 alone. This influx of settlers from the U.S. tipped the balance in an ongoing dispute between the United States and Great Britain over their claims to the Oregon country. And the Oregon Treaty was signed by both countries in 1846, splitting the Oregon country along the 49th parallel and creating the present-day boundary between the U.S. and Canada. This, however, did not mean that the U.S. government owned all of the land within the newly created Oregon Territory. So southwestern Idaho, what is today southwestern Idaho, was used by many different tribal groups. The Paiute peoples, it's part of the Great Basin where many different native peoples lived. And the United States then dealt, as the Constitution requires, in a political relationship with the native peoples that lived and used uh, southwest Idaho. In the 1860s, when, when gold was discovered in the, Boise, in the Boise Basin, they wanted Indians removed. That's the voice of Ted Howard, the tribal chairman of the Shoshone and Paiute tribes of the Duck Valley Reservation. There were bounties on our people, on scalps. It was $100 for a man, $50 for a woman, and $25 for a child. And that was... That was their intent, was to do away with our people, to exterminate our people. You can read material by George Washington, by Thomas Jefferson, and by other politicians that the United States did not plan on Indian people being here forever, did not expect Indian people and Indian nations to be here forever. George Washington himself wrote that the English treaties with the Indians were a temporary expedient to ease the minds of the Indian peoples. So I'm afraid most American politicians and federal officials thought they were just playing a waiting game for Indian peoples and Indian nations to die out and the United States would ultimately acquire everything. So it's clear what the goals of the U.S. government were at the time. It was to acquire all the lands and all the assets of North America and indigenous people get out of our way. And yet, the United States government was still constitutionally required to recognize that indigenous peoples had ownership rights, property rights, in the lands and assets in the areas that they lived. So how did the U.S. government mesh this goal of acquiring all the land of North America with the country's legal obligation to recognize that tribal governments already owned the land? So under our United States Constitution, the way this is done is through treaty making. They were buying property rights from Indian nations and Indian peoples. So because of that, 
we do have these treaties, 375 treaties that tribal nations signed with the United States from 1778 until 1871. You know, the, the treaties are even mentioned in the U.S. Constitution. Mm -hmm. It says that the treaties shall be recognized as the supreme law of the land, mm -hmm. but they're not. A lot of people don't even know they exist. So treaty-making then, while it looked so solemn and it looked constitutionally required and it looked like the United States was dealing honorably in a political diplomatic fashion, I'm afraid that just wasn't really the case. The United States never intended to keep these promises and under sort of a form of social Darwinism, uh, white Europeans thought that Indian peoples were a weaker culture, an inferior culture, and they were doomed to die out. The treaties were negotiated in English. Often the tribe that the United States was talking to might not even have really owned the lands that were being sold or the particular chief that a United States military officer was maybe dealing with might not really have been a chief, might not have had authority to sell tribal lands. And in fact, many Indians to this day would say that none of those chiefs had the power the legal authority to sell tribal lands and assets. Many of these treaty sessions, there was alcohol handed out. In many of these treaty sessions, there are allegations that bribes were paid. So the Indian treaties are suspect and how they were negotiated are suspicious, but yet they are important in the fact that they do provide today concrete rights for the tribes that signed those particular treaties. And so the citizens of those Indian nations, they have rights that the states cannot infringe on. And the United States agreed to it, and the United States does honorably continue to fight for tribal rights for salmon fishing here in the Pacific Northwest, wild rice gathering and fishing pursuant to Indian treaties in the Great Lakes area in the Midwest, Lots of treaties have provisions about education. Most treaties have provisions about health care for the tribe. And the United States does operate, for example, the Indian Health Service and spends, I think, three or four billion dollars a year on providing some levels of health care on Indian reservations. Plenty of American Indian tribes are still using their treaty rights today. So they're valuable for that particular, in that particular instance. But it's important to point out that there are something like 573 federally recognized tribes today. There were only about 375 treaties signed by the United States with Indian tribes. My tribe, for example, signed 11 treaties with the United States. The Cherokee Nation probably signed more than 15 treaties with the United States. So there are many tribes today that never signed a treaty with the United States. The Boise Valley Treaty, the Bruno Valley Treaty, and these treaties that cover southern and southwestern Idaho were never ratified. The Indians signed the treaty, but when they took it to, to Washington, it was never signed by the U.S. Senate. And there was never a legal transfer of land title. And that's where it stands. The Constitution requires the president to negotiate treaties and then they become constitutionally valid when two-thirds of the Senate ratifies it. 
In many instances, the Senate refused to ratify various treaties. And I don't know the exact reason, but I think in Oregon, what the United States was doing, and I referred to this earlier, George Washington referred to this in 1783, the United States expected Indian peoples to die out and Indian nations to disappear. And so the longer they took to make agreements, maybe more Indians were dying due to disease and due to warfare, and pretty soon there would be no Indians. So if the treaties that dictated the terms of a transfer or sale of the land that makes up all of Southwest Idaho were never officially signed into law, who actually owns the land? In the Boise Valley, all entire Southern Idaho is still an unsettled issue. It's never been transferred to the U.S. government. Indians still hold land title to that. Yes. So in 1946, Congress created the Indian Claims Commission. And every tribe in the United States that had any kind of claim against the United States, they were supposed to approach and file a petition with this Indian Claims Commission. Many tribes in the United States, including my own tribe, brought all sorts of claims of unfair dealing, dishonorable dealings by the United States, and breaches of treaties to this Indian Claims Commission. There were so many claims and it took so long to settle them that that bureaucracy that was only supposed to last for five years lasted for 32 years and was finally uh, terminated in 1978. And the reason the Shoshone Paiutes and the other Paiute tribes did not succeed in proving their claim to Southwest Idaho is because the test that the Indian Claims Commission used before it would compensate a tribe for lands that had been taken, the tribe had to prove that it had had exclusive use of that area. So I find that kind of ironic, since the United States would have bought the land from anyone who claimed to have owned it. But when it was time for the reverse to happen, for an Indian tribe to claim the United States owed them for it, the United States Indian Claims Commission demanded that tribes prove their exclusive use of southwestern Idaho. There are many, many tribes that are related. Okay. From here to Oklahoma, sure. Texas. Sure, sure. Yeah, our, our languages are very similar. Some words are identical. They're the same. So we're not different tribes. Okay. It's hard for me to let go of this issue over treaty rights and indigenous land ownership. The injustice of the situation is so appalling that I just can't look away. I find myself asking over and over again, what can be done? I suppose the guy could get a good picture in his paper, he could go out and claim it, and then the feds would come and arrest him. He could try to do what that, uh, those Bundy brothers did at Malheur Game Refuge and that their dad did down in Nevada. 
The occupation of Malheur National Wildlife Refuge in eastern Oregon by the Bundy brothers caught the attention of the country back in 2016. And at the time, numerous commentators and journalists brought up the irony of a group of white men claiming to be the rightful owners of a patch of land that the U.S. government had actually stolen from Native Americans. But there is actually a very similar case involving a group of Western Shoshone people who engaged in a strikingly similar protest. Have you ever heard of the Dan sisters, D-A-N-N? I hadn't. They are Western Shoshone people. They fought the United States for 30 years over the right to graze their own cattle on lands in Nevada that they claimed were still theirs. And so it involved Indian law, it involved indigenous human rights, and the United States sure treated them more harshly than it ever did the Bundy brothers. The Dan sisters took their case to the United Nations, and the UN ordered the US government to halt all actions against the Western Shoshone people, as explained by Carrie Dan herself at the 2006 United Nations Assembly in New York. This year, the Committee on Elimination of Racial Discrimination confirmed the Inter-American Commission's finding and issued a full decision under their early warning and urgent action procedures. We were very pleased that these bodies have recognized the wrongs that the government is committing against our people and other indigenous people. I want to thank you for listening to this little old lady. Thank you very much. Unfortunately, this UN ruling was largely ignored by the United States. The Shoshone Paiute people of the Duck Valley Reservation, with Ted Howard serving as the current tribal chairman, are a part of the Western Shoshone tribe, meaning that there were active protests over land ownership relevant to the Snake River Canyon region going on at the same time as legislation was being passed to create the Snake River Birds of Prey National Conservation Area. I asked Ted Howard if he or any other tribal government representatives had a seat at the table during the planning discussions that led to the creation of this National Conservation Area. It's just recently that tribes are able to sit at the table. Before then, we were heathens. Nobody talked to us. Just recently are we able to speak, and they don't like it, because now many tribes have attorneys, they have doctors, they have scientists, they have everything. And they're becoming more, very powerful, some of them. Some of them have big casinos, they've got money, they've got lobbyists in D.C. But no, back in this time, no, nobody asked us what we thought. I don't think the tribes even knew what was being proposed, I don't think, at that time. I'm holding in my hand Section 6 of the Act, uh, August 4, 1993, and Congress says that nothing in this act limits the application of the National Historic Preservation Act, the Archaeological Resources Protection Act of 1979, or the Native American Graze Protection and Repatriation Act. Tribes have rights in public lands, federally owned public lands, under these three acts I just mentioned. So tribal peoples and the Indian nations, such as the Shoshone, Paiute, etc., might have some rights they can allege and possibly win in court uh, regarding the, the raptor conservation area. 
The legislation that created the Snake River Birds of Prey National Conservation Area was passed at a time when significant changes were taking place regarding the rights of tribal governments. One particularly significant change occurred in 1990 with the passage of the Native American Graves Protection and Repatriation Act. This act, commonly referred to as NAGPRA, established that any Native American remains on publicly owned land are owned by the lineal descendants or closest living relatives of those remains. Now, this may seem like common sense, but as we've heard, it wasn't that long ago that tribal consultation in archaeological research was quite uncommon. So-called professional archaeologists are over there digging it up. They say they're protecting things. Oh, we're going to protect it. Yeah, take it over there and stick it in a drawer somewhere. That's not protection. Leave it where it is. That's where it was intended to be. Probably the most well-known archaeological site in the Snake River Canyon region is called Shellbach Cave, after Louis Shellbach, the archaeologist who is the first European-American to discover the cave. As Boise State University professor of anthropology and archaeology, Dr. Mark Plew explains. Shellbach came looking really for Pueblo and Anasazi uh, evidence. Didn't find that, but regardless, he did find Shellbach Cave. Because it's a cache of fishing gear, and in the context of all of the sort of mythic history about uh, local ethnographic historic uh, native populations utilizing, you know, uh, salmon fishery and so forth, um, it's, it's quite notable. You know, a lot of the things that you, you know, would expect to find in, a, in your tackle box, uh, there are fish hooks, there are, you know, uh, barbers, there are, uh, there's fishing line. There's some netting, a variety of different things. There are apparently some other items that are still back. The collection is largely still back in New York. Dr. Plew's reference to this collection of artifacts being located back in New York is quite interesting, juxtaposed with Ted Howard's dumbfounded attitude towards archaeologists who protect things by storing them in collections drawers in a museum. Of course, the Shellbach expedition took place in the 1920s, and things have changed quite a bit since then. I, I would tell you that we have not worked on federal property in 15 years. It's just too difficult at this point. Wow. It's something I predicted here uh, based off of what happened in California 25 years ago, where they allowed you know, tribal consultation to get to the point that everything just got shut down. Trying to get uh, you know, uh, approval for, uh, to go back and to do some follow-up work in some of the areas that we looked at in the Owyhees years ago, just being virtually impossible right. to try, which is automatically opposed. But even if archaeologists aren't able to get the permits that allow them to collect and study Native American artifacts, human visitation of culturally and historically significant sites has continued. I noticed a lot of our petroglyphs, people shoot at them, and, and just about everything I can, I can reference have been destroyed. <laughs> Yeah. or being impacted that way. And there were literally sites there where the material on the, on the surface was so dense that you had to be careful that you didn't step on formal tools. You would not even know that there were sites there now. I mean, there's like nothing left in some of these locations. They were prying off literally petroglyphs. Archaeological sites have had legal protection from looters since the passage of the Antiquities Act in 1906, but... You go back to the Depression, I remember a lot of the people that I met when I was first here who had an interest in archaeology, that's what they did. 
you know, um, basically unemployed. They went out camped out in some of these places. That's the occasional number of locations in the Owyhees, and they just collected artifacts. Some of the sites that we worked at in the Owyhees originally, we uh, a couple of years after we had done some testing, that we happened to be back out in the field. Looked down the canyon and saw some people doing something on the side. Went down and approached them, and they were digging, you know, as illicitly and so forth. Pulled a gun on us, and we just kind of backed away from them. But I drove back into Grandview, and I called up the sheriff at that time. And I reported this, and he screamed at me and hung up. But this was after he'd said, well, that's not illegal. It took an active enforcement effort to stop rampant illegal collecting across southern Idaho. Back about 25 years ago, the uh, assistant U.S. attorney for Idaho, he started to prosecute cases. Which ultimately, at the end of the day, you know, five years ago, the largest um, case of this sort uh, in American history was here in Idaho uh, with Jerry Young out of, out of Twin Falls, hmm. uh, who they had been chasing for decades. And he, you know, spent time in prison and so forth. While it's reassuring to know that these laws are now being enforced, the loss that has resulted from these decades of rampant illegal collecting is immense. It's just a painful thing for us to even re reflect on because we've told agencies over and over and over and over, but it don't make no difference. And yet, against all odds, the culture of the Shoshone and Paiute people has survived. You know, a lot of the remote reservations are still very strong in our tradition and culture and our language. Uh, some of the, the communities that are adjacent to cities, they really have a tough time with that, but we're sort of isolated out here and we retain a lot of lot of the, the stuff that other communities don't. In fact, a lot of people come to our community to try to learn about tradition and culture and language because we still we still retain that. America, America, no, yeah. America, America, no, yeah. So while the history of the Snake River Canyon region over the past several hundred years has been extremely tumultuous, the fact that Shoshone and Paiute culture remains strong and vibrant speaks to the extreme resiliency of these communities. There are innumerable lessons that mainstream society can glean from the history, culture, and experiences of the Shoshone Paiute people, and current land managers specifically should pay closer attention. We have 26 years of experience managing the Snake River Birds of Prey NCA as a federally protected conservation area, while the Shoshone and Paiute people have literally thousands of years of land management experience in the region. While it's certainly a good thing that tribal government leaders finally have a seat at the table for federal agency decision making, this does not go nearly far enough. How far must we go? How much power and control should tribal governments have in our modern society? These are difficult but important questions to ask. While I certainly don't have a solution, a common sense first step would be recognition from the United States government that the land of Southwest Idaho was occupied and managed by multiple Native American tribes up until very recently, and that these tribes therefore have a legitimate joint ownership claim over these lands. What would this mean for current Idaho residents who are descendants of white settlers? First and foremost, it means that we would be forced to come to terms with the ugly history of the region. Understanding that the new beginning sought by our grandparents and great-grandparents when they came west 
came at the expense of a culture and way of life that stretches back thousands of years. It means that we need to find a new balance in our modern society that leaves plenty of room for the cultures and governments that have the most experience operating on this continent. The Common Land Podcast is a production of the Wild Lens Collective and Radio Boise with support provided by the Bureau of Land Management, the Birds of Prey NCA Partnership, the Peregrine Funds Archives of Falconry, and a grant from Patagonia. This episode was produced by Wayne Burt, Steve Alsip, and myself, your host, Matt Podolsky. Production support provided by Jessica Evett, Leah Dunn, Ragged Coyote, and Jennifer Jarrett. Our theme music is by Like a Rocket and Ragged Coyote. Additional music for this episode comes from Judy Trejo with Delgadina Gonzalez and Christina Gonzalez from their album Circle Dance Songs of the Paiute and Shoshone, as well as from Delray Strawbuck and Claude Siwash from their album Shoshone Paiute Peyote Songs. You can learn more about the Common Land Podcast and see a full credit list on our website at commonlandpodcast.com.